Welcome to the podcast of Christ Covenant Church, a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, located in the township of Langley, British Columbia. My name is Gary Vanderveen, and I'm the senior pastor here. If you would like to know more about our congregation, please visit us online at www.langleychurch.org. As I already mentioned this morning, we will be reflecting again on that great and heinous sin called grumbling. But before we do that, I I want to respond briefly to a question that I received from a few of you last week, a a question that I answered implicitly in the sermon, but I I, I want to make it uh, explicit uh, for you now. And the question, uh, it it was something along these lines. What, What is the difference between pouring out your heart to God over your dire circumstances and grumbling. What's the difference between just sharing with the Lord where you're at, your struggles, your hurts, your burdens, and grumbling? Is there a difference? And the answer, of course, is yes, there is a difference. Uh, and the difference is in part uh, twofold. There's at least, at least two differences. When you pour out your heart to God, you go to the one who is in control of all things, the one who is in control of your circumstances, the one who can change all things, who can change your circumstances, who can actually change your situation. Okay? But when you grumble, you don't go to God. You complain about people who are not responsible for your situation, right? And that was the point I made last week about grumblers being cowards. They refuse to talk with God, and so they complain about God's people. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Those are the words of the psalmist, and and that's the psalmist pouring out his heart to God in faith. He's not afraid to speak of his circumstance. He's not afraid to say to the Lord where he's at. He feels all alone. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? That's pouring out your heart before the Lord in faith. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness, Moses? That's not pouring out your heart before the Lord in faith. That's complaining. That's grumbling. The second difference is when you pour out your heart before the Lord, you speak truthfully. You don't twist the truth. You don't manipulate the truth. You don't play fast and loose with the truth. You don't lie. You speak of your circumstances truthfully. But when you grumble, you twist the truth, you distort the truth, you you make the truth fit your narrative. You make the truth somehow justify your complaint. You use the truth in service to your agenda. You're you're always spinning the truth to make you look better than you actually are. 
Deliver me, O God, for the wicked speak against me with lying tongues. That's speaking truthfully. That's pouring out your heart to the Lord in faith. Moses, Aaron, you're killing us with hunger. That's a half-truth. That's grumbling. Lord, we, are, we will run out of food soon. How will you provide? That's pouring out your heart to God in faith. So that's very briefly, uh, it's not all the differences, but that's at least two differences between pouring out your heart to the Lord and grumbling and complaining. So with that, let's look at the passage before us in Exodus chapter 17. And the first thing that we need to observe here is that Israel is in Rephidim because this is exactly where the Lord wants her to be. She's not here by accident. She's here by the very commandment of God, notice again verse 1, all the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages according to the commandment of the Lord. Israel's not wandering aimlessly. Okay? You, you, you know how I like the word liturgy and liturgical. Like there, there's actually a liturgical aspect to Israel's traveling, her journey. It's like she's going by stages. It's highly organized. It's highly structured according to the commandment of the Lord. So why is Israel in Rephidim? Because that's what, exactly where the Lord wants her to be. And what's the problem in Rephidim? There's no water. This is exactly where Israel needs to be. And God's sovereign plan, he has a reason for Israel to be here. And let me briefly answer another question that uh, was raised this past week, a question that uh, you'll find rephrased in your uh, community group questions found on page 6 in, in your bulletin. And, and it's, it some, goes like this, right? If God is in control of everything, if, if, if Israel is here in Rephidim by the commandment of God, does that mean God wants Israel to be thirsty? Does God, does God want to do ill to Israel? Does he want to harm Israel? Right? If God is, a, is sovereign over all things, if he has foreordained all of history and bad things happen, does God want bad things to happen to people? Does God want bad things to happen to his people? The answer to that question is, of course, no, he doesn't. It's, it, it is a divine mystery. We can't go into this in great depth this morning. But we do need to remember two things. On the one hand, God is sovereign over every circumstance in history. 
And by sovereign, I mean it's not simply that God knows what is going to happen in the future, but that God actually has written a script for the future. Nothing happens in this world by accident. Nothing. As the Heidelberg Catechism says, and this is a great comfort to someone like me, not even a hair can fall from my head apart from my father's will. It's not by accident that I have a golden dome. It's not by accident. This is exactly where God wants me to be. This is exactly where God wanted Israel to be. He had a purpose for Israel to be there. And we also know that evil is solely 100% the result of man. And we know that God is always working in history to overcome evil. And so you'll remember that great story of Joseph. And when Joseph speaks to his brothers, when they come to Egypt, he says to them, you intended this for evil, but God intended it for good. So Israel is here at Rephidim, where there is no water, according to the commandment of God, and yet in God's providence, this is for Israel's good. I can't put that all together for you. There's, there's deep mystery here, but we need to affirm those two things. So Israel is at Rephidim, and there is no water. And verse 2 tells us that the people begin to quarrel with Moses. Quarrel, not grumble. Therefore, the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. Now, grumble is the word that we saw repeatedly through uh, chapter 16. That's the, the word that we saw occur seven times, right? Remember that? Seven times last week in chapter 16. But now their, their, their grumbling escalates to quarreling. They're downright aggressive. They move from the, the question, is your intent to kill us, Moses, to a demand, give us water to drink. Perhaps you have met people with what... I refer to as the self-entitlement syndrome. They demand to be given whatever it is. They demand from you to be given whatever it is that they want on their terms because after all, they deserve it. They're entitled to it. It belongs to them. And if you don't give it to them, you're actually stealing from them even though it doesn't belong to them. Perhaps this describes you. Perhaps you find yourself in this situation where you think that the whole world owes you everything. And so it escalates from grumbling the question, why have you brought us here? Have you brought us here to kill us? To a demand, give us something to drink. 
And this is not how a child ought to speak to a loving father. Remember, God is the loving father. Israel is his son. We saw that in the early chapters of Exodus as God re refers to Israel as his son, as his firstborn son. God is a loving father. He cares. He's a caring father. He cares for his, his son. This is not at all how a son ought to speak to his father. Rather, a son ought to say, Father, I'm thirsty. Father, please give me something to drink. But the ungrateful son quarrels, makes demands, is self-entitled. Now, how would you respond to a self-centered, self-entitled, quarreling grumbler? Perhaps that's not actually not a good question to ask this morning, especially after the response we received last week. So let me rephrase that question and say, well, what does a self-centered, self-entitled grumbler deserve? And I think we can all agree on this. Such a person, such a child, deserves to be punished, right? Well, how does God respond to his son? How does the all-loving, all-caring father respond to his ungrateful, grumbling, quarreling son? The answer in our text is a little complicated, so I'm going to give you four points. I want to draw your attention to four points and then bring it all together. I want to draw your attention to four points. As we go through them, you might think, well, what is, where is this going? How is this all related? Trust me, it all comes together. It will come together in the end. Okay? First, and the answer is found in verses 5 and 6. First, God tells Moses to take some of the elders and stand before the rock at Horeb. Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders. And behold, I will stand before you there on the rock. At Horeb. So God tells Moses to take some of the elders and stand before the rock at Horeb. And the elders are there to be witnesses to what God is about to do. Okay? Elders in the Old Testament, elders in the church, uh, they, we, we have many functions, but one of our functions is a judicial function. We, we hear cases at times. We, we weigh evidence. We, we need to make decisions. And here God summons the elders in a judicial capacity to be legal witnesses to what he is about to do. By two or three witnesses, the truth of a matter is established. Okay, and as Israel's legal representatives, God tells Moses to bring some of the elders uh, to come with him to stand before the rock at Horeb. 
Okay, that's the first point. Remember that. The second point, God tells Moses to strike the rock with a staff, but not any old staff, a very specific staff. Moses must use the staff with which he struck the Nile. Did you catch that in verse 6? Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike, oops, not verse 6, Verse 5, uh, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. And then he's supposed to strike the, rod, the, the rock with this staff. Now, why would this be important? Why would God specify the staff? Well, it's important because... Moses used this particular staff to bring the plagues upon Egypt. And so in the context, it is a staff of judgment. It is a staff of death. This was the staff that turned the waters of life, the waters of the Nile, into blood of death. It is a staff of judgment. It is a staff brings or transforms life into death. When Moses strikes the rock, it is symbolically the strike of death. Whatever Moses hits with his staff, that object will die. The river Nile dies, and all the plagues. It's interesting if you remember that all the plague, not all, but most of the plagues that happen, Moses uses this same staff. It is a Staff of judgment, a staff of death. So remember that. Third, God tells Moses that he will stand on the rock. Verse 6, behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. God, Yahweh, is standing on the rock. The rock. And so the question naturally arises, well, when Moses strikes the rock, does he actually strike the rock or does he strike Yahweh? Because Yahweh is on the rock. How can you strike the rock without striking Yahweh? And in one sense, this is a question that doesn't, the, the answer, that, that answer, it doesn't really matter because if you paid attention to 1 Corinthians 10, uh, who is the rock? What is the rock? Who does the rock symbolize? Who does the rock represent? Okay? Moses strikes the rock. That is to say, he strikes Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ. And we don't have time to unpack all of this morning, but all of this this morning, but you can look at the commentary section in, in, uh, in the bulletin with your community groups this week uh, on page six to, 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 to see that fleshed out a, a little bit. But the point is, Moses strikes the rock, and the rock is Christ. And Moses strikes the rock with the staff of judgment, the staff of death. Remember that. 
There's one more point, the fourth point, the final point is when Moses strikes the rock, water comes forth. And what is the theological significance of water? Well, water gives life. And which person of the Trinity is associated with water? The Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1, the Spirit hovers over the face of the waters. And John makes the connection, the, the Apostle John makes the connection between the Holy Spirit and water explicit in John 7, verses 38 and 39. Jesus says there that out of his heart will flow rivers of water, rivers of living water. And then John interprets the words of our Savior for us in this way. John says, now this he said. Jesus said this about the waters of life that will spring forth from his heart. Jesus, this he said about the spirit who had not yet been given. John 7, 39. In the Bible, the work and uh, the person and work of the Holy Spirit is, is connected with water. The rock is struck and water flows out. And... I don't want to get too carried away here with the symbolism. We've got to come to the main point. But it is interesting, is it not, that when Jesus' side is pierced when he's on the cross, that outflows water and blood, or blood and water. Blood for the forgiveness of sins and water symbolizing the coming of the spirit of life at Pentecost. The rock here is struck with a staff of death, a staff of judgment, and when the rock is struck, out comes the water, uh, flows the waters of life, prefiguring the giving of the Spirit on Pentecost. Okay, four points. I suspect many of you know where this is going, but let me bring it together to, to make it clear. Here's how the story unfolds. Israel grumbles. Israel quarrels. Israel puts the Lord to the test. And Israel deserves to die. Israel deserves to be struck by the staff of death, the staff of Moses, the staff with which Moses turned the life-giving waters of the Nile into the blood of death. Israel deserves to die, just as you deserve to die, and I deserve to die. And, and, and we don't deserve to die just because we were once grumblers and now we're not. By nature, we have put the Lord to test in a myriad of ways. As, as children of Adam, we have rejected the Lord. We have rebelled against the Lord and made all kinds of demands of him. We might not have demanded water, give us water, but we have behaved as self-entitled uh, people where we think we deserve everything. 
We deserve to die. We deserve to be struck by the staff of Moses. And how does God respond to us? He gave us his son, his only begotten son, to be struck with the staff of the curse of the covenant. He gave his son to be nailed to a tree to take our punishment. This is a glorious picture of substitutionary atonement. You deserve to die. You deserve to be struck. And yet the Lord says to Moses, you strike the rock who is my son. And let the elders of Israel be witnesses to what I am doing. That they might know that I, the Lord, your God, will atone for your sins. Let the elders of Israel know that through the death and resurrection of my son, the spirit of life will be poured out on the day of Pentecost to give life to all who believe. Do you remember the words of Jesus? Whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Israel deserves to die. But God takes her punishment. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning for the first time. Come to Jesus for the thousandth time. It doesn't matter how many times you've come to Jesus. Come to Jesus this morning. And trust him at every stage of the journey. Knowing that you are exactly where you need to be today. Perhaps you're at Rephidim where there is no water. Perhaps things are going very well for you where there's an abundance of water. But come to Jesus wherever you find yourself encamped. Trust in him. He took your punishment. He was struck for you. He was struck so that the spirit of life might give you life. Come to him. Entrust yourself to him. Follow him. Thank you.